players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic Gathering, Rite of Flame, Hymn to Torak, Nether Void, and many others can. Battling head to head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy in the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com. And welcome to Episode 7 of the Eternal Glory Podcast. I'm your host, Anurag Das, joined with co-hosts Bryant Cook and Wilson Hunter. Happy Sunday, friends. Happy Sunday evening. We're actually recording this a little later, later than usual. So, uh, fair warning, Bryant is already massively inebriated, and Wilson is just sipping some milk. How are you guys doing? <laughs> I'm pretty good. How are you, Wilson? I'm doing fantastic. I'm happy to be here. Cool. So, we're going to start off with uh, just like some basic laundry list to-do things. First, I want to say... Thank you so much uh, for the most recent batch of donations. Uh, first goes out to our friend from across the pond, Mr. Francis Cowper. We have Tristan Mayshark and Dick Fisher, who have all generously donated. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And on that note, talk to me about your guys' lives. What's been going on? I know we've gotten some feedback, and so you know, thank you so much for the feedback. As we continue the podcast, we always are looking to sort of improve our the quality of what we've got going and you know stuff like that so tell me about yourself what's going on did you just say puberty <laughs> hello well uh <laughs> i just want to say thank you to you guys for taking over the last episode and thank you for eddie for coming on and filling in for me so i had a child about Gasp. 10 days ago and i'm not sure you told the audience that i went back and Listen to the last episode, and I heard you you tell our audience I was doing something relatively important. So that that, that is what I was doing, and and yeah, so I'm happy happy to be back. Uh, been having some sleepless nights, but it's been great. And cardboard live going strong. So we've been making some stuff for Wizards of the Coast and Star City and some of our partners, and excited to release some new things soon. So. You know, James and I have been working on that. I'm only talking about it because we had a listener say they wanted to hear about Cardboard Live updates. So we're releasing actually a pretty huge feature set pretty soon for our one-player streamers. Actually, I haven't even told you guys about this because it, it probably doesn't affect legacy streamers. But yeah, excited about it. I heard that your newborn's middle name was uh, Unzi104. Can you confirm or deny for the viewers, for the listeners, I'm so sorry. For the listeners, I'll just choose not to respond. Anyways, Bryant, any new updates? Any fresh, fresh deets that you wanted to spill the beans on? Well, I have some pretty great writers that write for the website that released some articles in the last week that have been covered up by Modern Horizon spoilers. So uh, there's a Through the Looking Glass by Anthony Laverde featuring Eddie Zamora, who was actually on the podcast last week. And Eddie talks about his matchup against Storm with humans. And then uh, a couple other articles, uh, one about Aldrazi Ramp and that matchup, uh, that sort of thing. So I've just been editing those. 
And uh, I think on the last episode, we talked about how I was preparing for a standard tournament. I played in the standard open here in Syracuse, and I made day two, and I built my deck to be very efficient with uh, Experimental Frenzy. And then day two, it failed me. I was only running Frenzy as, as my four drops, and I lost the mirror two rounds in a row due to Frenzy revealing Frenzies and that sort of thing. So it was a little unfortunate, but the wheels kind of fell off. Oh, damn. That sucks. Sorry. I don't know. I've been really caught up with work lately. I've been trying to stream some. So like this past week, I went to Houston to visit my family. Uh, for viewers of my Twitch channel, you will have noticed that I brought my portable streaming PC and had a great time on Friday streaming. So that was pretty cool. Uh, implemented some of the tips and tricks we talked about in the last episode. So if you are interested in streaming, definitely check that one out. Otherwise, it's just been a little bit of work. Work is starting to wrap up, so that's kind of cool. That means my schedule for streaming is going to get a little bit better, which means I can stream earlier and longer. So look forward to that. Let's All right. get... I didn't know that your family was from Houston. I'm very disappointed in you now that you are not a sports fan. The Astros just won the World Series you know, a couple years ago. You have the Rockets being good, and now you're living in San Diego with the Padres, and you just know nothing. Yeah, I'm about the esports life, friend. Mm, brother anyway uh let's get into our uh feedback from the last episode yeah so the first thing is i do apologize we sort of rushed job the editing it was a longer episode and so there's a lot of stuff that had to be taken care of so the audio levels i know a lot of viewers gave feedback uh, listeners gave feedback on the audio levels and i was a little louder this time uh we are solving this we're doing it much earlier today is sunday we'll have it done by wednesday and then we have all of thursday to audio check. So this one's for you guys. Yeah. I bought a new minivan recently. And the first thing I listened to <laughs> on the speakers was the last episode of this podcast. It had a, be- that go? a beautiful intro by one of our buddies. Actually, I don't, we don't say who it is. I was about to say, I don't, I don't know if we say it or not, but it was a great. No, no, no. It's a, it's a secret thing. Like we, at some point in time, we want to like be able to say like, can you name them all? And I'm sure like we'll find a way to reward the viewers that can. So I've asked person. people if they know all six so far and no one's been able to list all six. I same same for me. Yeah. No one has been <laughs> able to list all all of them. So Well this last one was certainly maybe more identifiable than some, but we'll see. So listen to the beautiful intro, the nice catchy little jingle of Mr. Blue Sky, and then BAM <laughs> Anurag's voice comes in on my my new minivan speakers rattling the entire thing. I immediately reach for the, the volume and turn it down and, and cringe and hope that I didn't blow out the speakers in the first five minutes of owning the car. But. You know what the kids say these days, Wilson? They say wubba lubba dub dub. So, awesome. Guess I'm behind the times. But yeah, no, for sure. This this time, for sure, I will do a better job with the audio editing. Thank you so much for your patience and thank you for even being here this episode and listening to what we have to ramble about. Let's get into the comments, though, because uh, there are a good number, and I do want to just get through these. So the first one from Reddit, posted by Maxtortion, really enjoyed this episode. Content creation has so much invisible work behind it, and the three of you did a great job speaking about it, how to get into it, and your experiences. Uh, Thank you, Max. Bryant, you look like you have something to say. I just want to say, we appreciate you, Anurag. Uh, don't let Wilson's negative feedback uh, hurt your feelings. I think you're beautiful, and 
you do a lot of uh, work editing each and every episode, and sometimes things happen, uh, things slip, but I appreciate your dedication to this podcast, unlike people that skip episodes just because they happen to have a third kid. Yeah, we're looking at you, Jerry, but... <laughs> <laughs> he is the no. third. <laughs> uh, that being said, though, yeah, no, Max, you're definitely right. There's, I mean, I know Max has also done a little bit of content creation. He runs his own little blog, the Min Max blog with uh, Min Hajul, and it, he posts some pretty good content. So I think he recently released a 3,000-word primer on the revamped Bomberman deck, which has been taking over Moto kind of by storm. A lot of streamers have been uh, showcasing what this deck can do. A uh, number of 5-0s have been posted and you know just been lauded. I don't know. The deck is super sweet. Max has put up some good content. Super smart guy. Yeah, no, it's definitely, definitely, thank you for noticing this, and it is hard work. Uh, so the next bit of feedback, a great podcast, so many parts I could really resonate with, and some of which made me rethink my current strategy for creating quality content. Keep up the great work, guys, from Dugs on Reddit. Wow, that's just a generally nice comment. Very cool. Yeah. Do you know that Dugs streams? He streams Maverick. We talked about it, actually. Didn't we talk about his website that he had recently put up? We did, greensunzenith.com. Yeah, I love his personality. He's very, like, cheery, enjoyable. And honestly, there's so much information that we can, like, bounce off each other as content creators. The whole legacy community has been very good about propping each other up, supporting each other. You know, just, like, raids, hosts, follows, retweets, likes, loves, dog pictures. It's just been fantastic. So uh, thank you for your feedback, for sure. Yeah, I mean, if you have any tips or tricks that you have of your own, you know, any interesting experiences, feel free to... Uh, Leave them in the comments. I have something for you. Yeah, hit me up. Uh, Quit saying um. Oh. I've already counted like five ums that I was going to take out and post, but whatever. Well, Wilson keeps on typing it into our show notes every three lines because you keep on doing (laughs) it. No, no, that was was me. I put it every three notes so that I would like have a reminder (laughs) not to say it. So, but yeah. (laughs) See, that's that's me trying to get better at this. There you go. Okay. All right. So. Uh, the next bit of feedback we have is, I was saddened to find out that Anurag had streamed Sekiro, and I missed it! Ruda Barracuda. I love this name, and I also know Dave Baruda. He's in the DMV area. Super awesome guy. We carpooled to a bunch of tournaments together. Dave, I promise I will be streaming other games as they come out. Apparently there was a rumor about a Game of Thrones X from Software video game, and I know I'm speaking a different language to Wilson and Bryant right now, but... I'm probably going to pick that game up and play it. It's going to be very similar, so look forward to that for sure. And on to some more critical feedback, things that we do want to address and, you know, just reference in our quest to get better. One Reddit commenter, Philip Mewson, said, I listened to Eternal Glory for legacy content, not for learning how to get 70 viewers in my narrow branded stream. And, uh, hey, thanks for that. I I, I do agree um, that this this, uh, last podcast episode was Certainly off-brand, com- you know, compared to all the other ones, but we did mention at one point that we wouldn't necessarily want to bottleneck ourselves into just legacy content. I think legacy is sweet, but there's also so much other amazing and awesome stuff to talk about, so we hope to be able to cover those topics as well. Thank you for your patience with us. Well, not even just that. If you're not a content creator right now, you might be in the, in the future, and things change. Other people gain things from the episode, and I'm sure, hey, maybe it wasn't for you, but you might have learned something if you didn't. Uh, thanks for listening anyway, but oh well. <laughs> Actually, no, that's a really good point. I mean, what if what if what if this 
last podcast was the grounds that one new legacy content creator like listened to and was like, hey, I can make content too. Actually, I take it back. Now I'm, I'm much more happy. So we have one more comment. This comment is from one of our favorite listeners and fans. I think he's a self-professed top 10 fan of the podcast. Lewis CBR. So uh, Lewis was, I guess, this is a gen- the way this is written is generally to the legacy public. You should listen to the latest Turtle Glory podcast. You'll get a lot of er advice. The beginning is particularly funny as guys without marketing degrees debate about what branding means. Well, thanks for the recommendation to the community to listen to our podcast, Lewis. We really appreciate it. I I would like to say that I actually do have a marketing degree. That is the only degree that I have. And uh, Bryant has some experience in branding. I'm honestly not sure what Anurag's life experience is, but I think that he's an experienced guy and, and all sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we appreciate you listening to the show, and thank you. Actually, I will say one thing, though. I don't really have any experience in branding, which is kind of, like, interesting in terms of perspectives because from from my side, right, like, I looked at, like, my content creation as a hobby, but the dream, living the dream would be if this was, like, my full-time occupation – and converting that from a hobby into an occupation. Like, like I don't have any marketing experience, but it's sort of interesting the way that I look at it, the perspective that I come at towards making this into like a sort of reality, I guess. I don't know, but yeah. And then lastly, and I think this is my favorite, this is probably the most productive comment that I have seen so far. And I really, really appreciate this. Um, this is very, very shortened down, but Eric Wagner sent an email submission which we do have, by the way. So definitely send us your feedback via email if you are interested. Brian, take it away. As someone who doesn't listen to that many podcasts, I can't help but compare this to The Brainstorm Show. Ring! Maybe this is a fault of mine, but I can't help it. One thing that I really loved about that show was how it seemed that you guys worked on a deck creation tinkering together. You had a goal project and would spend that time talking about it on the podcast I know you guys all do different things when it comes to magic and life, but I would love to see some collaborative thing between you guys. I think you guys have great potential. Well, thank you, Eric. We greatly appreciate it. I think one thing that I would like to do, maybe it's not necessarily on the same wavelength, Eric, as as what you're suggesting, but I do like scouring deck lists. I love scouring deck lists to see like what kind of random tech I can put in my miracles list. I already have a couple ideas lists in mind that we could discuss if that'd be something interesting for you. For example, I know one of our donors, Francis Cowper, has a sweet blue-red uh, Narset Parter of Veils slash Sahili Sublime Artificer deck that could be of interest. What if that made you lose the bet, though? I didn't think this far. <laughs> I just want to say too that the brain. Just to be totally honest, the brainstorm show is probably my favorite legacy podcast. I'm sort of sad they're not doing it anymore, and it's it's honestly hard to to reach that level of quality. So we're we're gonna do our best, but those guys are awesome. Rest in peace, brainstorm show. TBS. Cool. So let's dive into the first topic of the night. Topic one, and I'm reading the show notes, and it says. Narset and Karn. Is this the first time you've read the notes, by the way? Uh, I may have like glanced through them. I noticed a couple things, and I made. Anrag doesn't look at the notes. I made some decisions here and there. Like for example, I think there was one thing where you wrote about your 
deck list being better than whatever I... Oh my god, you added it back. Okay, well... <laughs> um, but yeah, Narset, Narset and Karn are the first topics of the night. And I think these two cards have really just changed Legacy. In like just a few weeks, MTGO is swarming. Vintage is swarming. Legacy is swarmed by these two cards. So what do we want to talk about first? Let's talk about the high level of, of Narset. So I guess we split this down into two discussions, Narset and Karn. And uh, let, I guess let's start with Narset if it's okay. So we talked about these cards when they came out. We didn't spend a ton of time on Narset, but we included Narset as part of our discussion of the new Planeswalkers. And I, I guess I briefly wanted to talk about why this card ended up being the home run of, of the new set. And it's interesting because in this set, we basically got a new type of card. Even though they're Planeswalkers, they play totally different different uh, than a lot of Planeswalkers we've seen. For example, there are static abilities on Planeswalkers. There's Planeswalkers that only minus. Narset has both of these things where it starts with a certain amount of loyalty. It only has one activated ability and a static. So it's really hard to, to look at this card and say, like, what does this do? Teferi is similar in that it has a static and a, a few abilities that seem situational, and it's it's hard to really determine how good all those abilities play out together. The reason why I think Narset is so good, and I think that we said this uh, a few weeks ago, um, but has really played out to be this way, is that the minus on the card by itself is exactly what the decks that are playing it would like to be doing. Activating Narset two times, essentially impulsing for a spell twice, uh, a non-creature, non-land, is exactly what Miracles wants to be doing. You essentially get the dig-through-time value, so you get to see eight cards in your deck, and you're getting two of them. You know, it's not necessarily in, in any order there, but um, you're also getting two of the really good cards. So by itself, that is really good. And then when you add in the static ability, which totally hoses any other any type of, uh, of blue mirror match, it just creates a card that, that swings these matchups tremendously. But I just want to emphasize how important it is for that card to be good by itself without the static having to necessarily carry the card. And it's different, in my opinion, than something like Teferi, where the static plays, it has such a large impact on how good that card is in any given matchup. Well, I know one thing, at least for Vintage, is that decks that previously had cut red are now playing red again just for Pyroblast. So I play a lot of Peel, Paradoxical Outcome Online, and I'm playing three copies of Pyroblast, and I imagine it's very similar to Legacy. While I haven't played Miracles since Narset has come out, I imagine that it's probably not as viable if you're just straight blue-white. You probably need the red just for Pyroblast to combat opposing Narset. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to play Red Blast and Miracles now. I mean, Anurad, can you speak to this some? I mean, you've been grinding Miracles in Legacy for the last couple of weeks. So I'll start by saying... I think Narset is definitely, what do I want to say here? I don't even actually know. I think the first thing I'd just like to address what you were saying, right? So regarding like miracles and like how it's going to evolve and adapt, I don't think I've seen blue-white miracles in in a decent bit uh, online. I've seen like maybe blue-white stone blade, but I mean, that's a whole different behemoth in and of itself. So I feel like red blast is very good moving forward. I know in the Gods of Legacy Challenge, the Haruya tournament, you know, one of their biggest tournaments, 
the Miracles player there, who's very, very good, his name is Tatsumi Kobayashi, was playing two Narsets in his main deck, but he also even had one copy of Pyre Blast in the main deck, which I personally think might be going a bit too far, but I'm certainly down to test it out. But that just goes to show how the sort of prohibitive effect that Narset might provide against Miracles or just like, you know, in general, necessitates having an answer for it so that you can actually operate your deck as is intended. Uh, one thing that I've noticed is that having played against Narset, the card is very, I almost want to say the word oppressive, like playing against Narset, that like a Narset that has resolved and, you know, you have no answer for it. It's just crazy because then you start sitting on these like brainstorms and ponders and preordains and you're just like, I can't do anything. I think the, the most depressing thing is, well, actually, Wilson, you're familiar with this. We played against each other online when we were both streaming. Uh, you were working with Jarvis. You're shaking your head. Why are you shaking no, your head? Continue. Okay, cool. And in in our game one, you resolved the Narset on turn five, and it literally just shut me down for that entire game, which was actually quite terrifying. Uh, I do want to point out, I, I did still come out ahead in the match. So that was that was kind of hey, funny. Hey, <laughs> was also testing some sort of miracles list with three copies of Dovin's Veto and a Teferi in it. He also beat us. Well, that with, was not the same. That was not the same. List, he also but. beat us with a monastery mentor in games two and three. And after the match, I saw that he had a single monastery mentor in his entire seventy-five to hour four. Mm -hmm. Skillfully just drew it off the top of my deck at my most dire moment. Um, but no, regarding you know my my perspective, I've been grinding a lot. I actually have a somewhat different opinions. So I think when the spoilers first came out, I'm just going to give you my life story. I thought Teferi was insane. I had hardly even looked at Narset. I put both cards in my deck. My opinion almost immediately switched where I thought, wow, this Narset card is so incredible. And then I was like, oh, Teferi is good, but it's definitely not as good as I thought it was. Now, the more that I play it, I'm so slowly starting to find that Narset is, is just a headache for me. It's powerful when you get to play it and, you know, reap the double impulse ability. But I find that that very rarely happens. Decks have a lot of, I guess I want to say, like either creatures or like counter magic or just ways to make it make it so that Narset isn't as powerful as she could be. Like the format sort of min-maxes itself out where you can't just, you know, play a three mana Planeswalker that has no way to protect itself that, you know, dies super easily without going through some sort of loops and, you know, holes or whatever so that you can make sure that, you know, Narsa does its thing. But it's a three-mana three Planeswalker that instantly creates value for you. So in, in a worst-case scenario of it resolving, you are still looking at the top four cards of your deck for relevant spell and then having your opponent react to this permanent that is in play, right? Yeah, I have not been satisfied with that ability in my deck. So, for example, let's say my opponent has like a, a Baleful Strix or a Delver of Secrets. You know, uh, Delver of Secrets is flipped, attacks. Sh sure, three mana, impulse. Baleful Strix attacks, then I minus two Narset again. That's card advantage. I'm happy with that. But the fact that I don't have the passive around sometimes where I actually depend on it. Like, I, I guess like one... Here's, here's a good example, right? So, 
maybe maybe the passive is just supposed to be like icing on the cake, right? But I actually look at the passive as an answer to Jace the Mind Sculptor, opposing Jace the Mind Sculptor. So sometimes I really just want to keep the Narset on the table, but I have to go through all these hoops like plowing creatures like Snapcaster Mage and Baleful Strix or countering cake commands that I would previously not care about, that kind of thing. Well, isn't that just showing how good the effect is if you're willing to do all of that with your resources to keep the card in play? Yes, but there's a cost to it, right? Like, just because I keep it in play doesn't mean that my opponent's decks are completely shut down. It's not like a Chalice of the Void where, you know, they literally just can't cast any more one-drops. They can... Well, I mean, Chalice, that's maybe that's not the best way to explain it. But the, the point of the matter is, is most of these decks in Legacy are not as uh, hampered by Narset as I originally thought. Like, most of the cards will get under Narset. For example, like Ponder, Brainstorm, those are all one-mana spells. You just play them on the first few turns. Uh, Baleful Strix, for example, that's, you know, the card you just play it super early kind of deal. I will say, though, like Narset's ability against cards like Sylvan Library, uh, Palace Jailer, and Gristlebrand, those are three specific cards I can point out to you where I've been very satisfied by putting a Narset into play, protecting it. Jace is a little bit harder to fight because most of the Jace decks will be playing Red Blast at this point, and there's no really efficient answer to... Red Elemental Blast slash Pyroblast against Narset. Um, but yeah. So I, I have three points I would like to bring up, and I've put a lot of thought into them. So dating back to Grand Prix Niagara Falls or Magic Fest Niagara Falls, we saw a very large uptick in Spell Snare. I've seen very, very, very little Spell Snare ever since uh, War of the Spark or War for the Spark, whatever the fuck it's called. Uh, so... Oh, Wilson just gave me bug eyes. I shouldn't swear. I'm I'm very, very sorry, audience. Uh, so, Spellsner, ever since the new set, has just vanished. Uh, I think part of the reason why is Narset, because one of the most crucial spells in the format costs three, and you can't Spellsner it. We were in a format where everything costs two that you cared about. Stoneforge, Mystic, Counterbalance, Hypnotorok, all that stuff, two mana. That's vastly changed with Narset. So, we're seeing a change in deck construction. Uh, I think that Spells Pierce has gotten a lot better. And uh, there's Wilson put a recommended list for us to look at when discussing Narset. And I think subconsciously he did something that I agree with. So I've played a couple locals recently. I've been playing more locals than online due to just like, I love supporting local magic. It's something I'm very passionate about. Uh, but I faced Miracles decks with Narset and one copy of Teferi with like Monastery Mentors and stuff. One local can confirm this. He's resolved Counterbalance against me four times, and I've won three times because he's revealed a three-mana card against Storm, where I think Counterbalance has become a lot worse now that Miracles' average converted mana cost is raised because they're playing a lot more threes in their deck than they were previously. So I, I'm actually pretty low on Counterbalance in current lists of Miracles due to Narset, Monastery Mentor, Teferi, all uh, Council's Judgment, because I know that some lists are even going up to two to battle opposing Narsets. So... I'm talking very quickly. I apologize. No, Brian, that, but, that's a great point. I do you, Sorry, do you want to continue? Yeah. So in general, I think that maybe counterbalance isn't right anymore. And you, but if I was playing miracles, I'd probably be playing more copies of spell peers. Uh, and then my final point is to combat something Anurag said about by the time that Narset resolves, people have run out of ponders and brainstorms. That's not true. So sometimes you're on the play. It's turn two. They've played a ponder and a brainstorm. Uh, so the way that games play out is sometimes people hold their cantrips so that way they can get the most value out of them via fetch lands or whatever, and they end up stranded with cantrips in their hand due to Narset. 
another thing is decks like ad nauseum tendrils uh they're in 12 one mana cantrips sometimes they just literally can't get rid of all of them fast enough um so i know that i am in the ad nauseum tendrils group they've there's been a lot of complaints about narset because their deck is a little bit slower and i'm not trying to shit on ad nauseum tendrils here i promise but they're hurt by Narset a lot more than other combo variants due to their number of cantrips. And it hurts in a deck that's trying to outgrind the blue decks because Narset kind of put a nail in that coffin. So now I've seen a lot of these Storm Pilots trying to become a little bit quicker with hybrid lists or maybe adding in a copy of Chrome Mox, things like that to speed up just to get underneath Narset. It seems very similar to what decks were doing when uh, Searcher's Canto was printed. And now I'll get off my soapbox. That was great. So one point, in addition to shutting off draw effects in your hand, a, a huge consideration for this is the basically the parity mode in a game where both players have they're dwindled down their resources, they don't have much left. We get into this top deck war. It doesn't have to be a, a total top deck war, but maybe there's one or two cards left in, in each player's hand. And at that point, Narset totally changes the, the math on the long game. So these blue decks have anywhere from 8 to 20 plus cards that are affected by Narset. I say 20 plus for a deck like Miracles. You have you know 12 in a deck like Storm or a deck that has 8 cantrips plus Baleful Strix and, and all these other things. And when you add that into the top decking math, into the lands, you go from something like 30 to 35 percent just almost dead draws to over 50 percent, maybe even you know 60 plus percent dead draws with with the narset and play and it helps you statistically uh you know get it get ahead of your opponent you know over over a large sample size of of games where you have a narset and play and they don't so yeah actually i was going to mention that is one of the few situations where i also think narset shines is like in the the mid to late game where you know your deliver opponent may have been like not deploying their lands because they just you know want to brainstorm them back suddenly narset's like no you're stuck with these dead cards and that's that's pretty powerful but I don't think, I just, like the earlier list that I was trying had like three copies of Narsets. I tried four copies of it. I tried two, I tried one, um, all colors of the rainbow. And ultimately, I'm just kind of concluding that Narset isn't supposed to be the kind of card that you play around as much as it is a card that you insert into your deck for just generic utility. You know what I mean? Like, for example, if you have a Narset on five, I'm just going to throw this question at you, Wilson. You tick down, she's at three, then a Baleful Strix attacks it down to two. What do you do on your next turn? Do you keep the Narset around? Do you, you know, cash in on the value immediately? What would you do? I'm going to take the cop-out answer that I can absolutely not tell you what I would do in that scenario. Number one, because what you're insinuating is that I played a Narset on five into a board with a Baleful Strix in play. So, so you would never do that? Well, no, I... These are a okay. lot of that never is a strong all word, sure. of these are rules that I would never operate by, but I'm saying that if I did that, there's a reason why I felt like playing Narset in that situation against a Baleful Strix was going to help pull me ahead in the game, or maybe I'm behind in a way where it's what I have to do, where I'm probably going to minus twice. There's I'm I'm not just going to do this turtle up and protect the queen mode with my Narset some huge percentage of the time. I think that's a poor way to play the card. The other thing is earlier, Anurag, when you described Delver being a threat to Narset, 
I also just don't think it's a card where you generally play in a situation where you're being threatened by Delver unless you just haven't been able to deal with Delver at all with any of the other resources in your deck. And when your deck is basically all cantrips and draw spells and removal encounters and all this stuff, my experience has been that you just don't really run into these situations where you have to power out your Narset straight into a board with, with threats that can kill your Narset. So I think it creates some interesting scenarios. I do, uh, and you're a very skilled miracles player. You play a lot more than me, so I'm not doubting your experience here. But I also think that maybe there's just some different ways of of playing the card that uh, some some ways make it better, and some ways make it more of a liability. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that the, uh, I mean, Narsa is such a new card into the format, right? There's no way that we have suddenly solved this card already. We have the perfect deck list, so I think definitely more time will help figure out. The optimal list, the optimal play styles, the optimal utilities of the card. And um, I'm looking forward to that. I have a quick comment about the situation that you asked Wilson for his opinion, but you didn't ask for mine. Thank you, Anurak. Uh And it's that while things have context, like Wilson said, and you don't always follow a plan A or plan B ruling. One thing I did initially think of is Grixis control doesn't strike me as a matchup where Narset is at its best for its static ability because they do have things like Kalgan's Command or Culligan's Command, however you'd like to say it. But on top of that, at that point, they only have 13 draw spells left in their deck. They have four Brainstorm, four Ponder, three more Baleful Strix, and then two copies of Jace the Mind Sculptor. So, like, it's not like it's incredibly effective there. Like, it's good, but it's not the max potential of a legacy deck that you could be shutting out with the static ability. So in a blanket statement, I would probably minus there, but like obviously it's depending on the context of the game. Yeah, I think, so if I had to answer the question myself, I sort of did some self-introspection and I kind of figured out like Narset's passive ability is kind of just like icing on the cake. You know what I mean? Like if it's there, it's there. That's awesome. Contextually, obviously it's worth keeping around or protecting or fighting for at some times. But in general, I just kind of want to see this as like a, as a two turn dig through time, you know, four turns, four cards over each turn where I um, will minus two and try to extract as much value as I can and just try to use those, the volume of cards that I get to snowball or progress my game plan. Um, but, but in general, those are the kind of considerations and like headaches that have come up to me for me in, in, in testing. I've seen a number of takes on the card for example i've seen a couple lists where people will like have one in the main deck and then they'll have another in the sideboard or you know i mean they've completely skewed their decks to play with narset like for example earlier i mentioned there was the uh the narset slash sahili deck that has four narsets and zero jace um it, like i mentioned there's there's just a lot of there's a lot of time eventually i'm sure there will be a consensus but yeah, I think I think that's one thing that I I do like about Teferi though, for example, is that the turn that you do put Teferi into play, I, I have personally found the the passive ability of Teferi to be extremely mm, relaxing and I, I I don't mean to say that this is like me just trying to get away with being lazy cuz I mean it probably is, but it's 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 been very nice to be like, you know, put Teferi into play and then I know my next spell, my opponent literally cannot do anything. The number of times where my opponent will have tried to like, you know, end step abrupt decay my Teferi and I'm just like, you can't do that. You know, it's it's it's, it's at least double digit by now, um, yeah. which is a lot. Well, so that makes a lot of sense because if you think about it too, 
Teferi leads itself to more comfortable, proactive lines, whereas Narset is putting you into the sub-game of trying to determine up until this point in the game, what does your opponent likely have in their hand? Is there a snapcaster scenario? K-command? Are they holding some cantrips? All these different things, right? But I know you're not arguing this. You're, you literally just admitted that it may not... It's just about the simplicity. But I would I would argue that even against blue decks, that the static on Narset ends up being potentially more powerful in that it can totally lock out a game and not necessarily just give you these protected turns if it sticks around and allowing you to untap. And all that being said, I, I don't even think, I mean, it is worth comparing the statics. It's a huge part of it, but the value mode is so different between these two cards. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I agree that the 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 dead turns with Teferi, where I'm just like ticking up and like not doing anything, like passing the turn like that. Though those feel those feel pretty bad. But like there's still other value to extract. Like I've cast a number of ponders and determinists. I've hard cast entreat to ambush like creatures. You know, council's judgment even at instant speed. It, it, it's definitely up and down, and it's not necessarily like one to one. Like we're comparing apples to oranges, but I, I guess you could still do that. But yes, like the Narset generating mass value is one thing that I really like about it. Teferi doesn't necessarily do that, but I do think there is value in playing a card. You know, you tick down, you draw a card, you've replaced it, and you've established a little bit of tempo at least. You know, like if you like, for example, bounce a creature back or a vial back or a chalice back or something like that, you know? It's not like it's just... Yeah, I, I would... Drawing cards or whatever. I would call Teferi a Swiss army knife with maybe, you know, let's say an apple peeler a fingernail clipper and a corkscrew on it but sometimes you just need to go out there and uh you know dig dig a hole or something and you don't have the shovel right i think that the teferi is like a or sorry that narset is like a one of those giant steam engines that just reaches into the ground and and just grabs the earth <laughs> and shovels it. this analogy is awful what what are you talking about? Is this way is this is is this like a, a steam engine of like like a time traveling steam engine? Because then I get the digging. Then it makes total sense. You just gotta think outside the box, right? Come on. But yeah. So let's I mean that that that's very interesting take. That's that's I'll I'll wrap up. So Wilson, you think this card is hot fire? Yes. Okay. Brian, you think this card is hot fire? It's insane. Okay. I think this card is it's probably like medium to medium high on the, the oven top. That's where I would put it. And Teferi is hot fire. Teferi is, is just fuego. <laughs> Teferi is just like... Teferi, like, you, you don't, you, you don't want to touch the stovetop when Teferi's in play. How good is five minutes of Teferi, in your opinion? Um, I have not played that card because I play three colors in my Miracles deck. I mean, I've played it before, but Whoa, I just I don't. Yeah, I was going to say... I, 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 you're playing that card maybe fifty percent of the time I tune into your stream. And use card? and use cardboard live to look at your deck list. The five minute fairy. Oh, then you've only tuned in that's what then you haven't been tuning in that often, Mr. Hunter. No, but I I don't know. Teferi Hero of Dominaria is kind of just like a guilty pleasure that I'll be like, oh, maybe Teferi is good now. Like when I change one thing, then I go back and I'm like, well, maybe this this change makes something that I tried before that wasn't good better kind of deal. You know what I mean? Like just like sort of revisit the the broken things that didn't work. Just if, if you stumble on something that's like insanely good. But Teferi Hero of Dominaria is not 
my favorite card in a, in a in a deck where I'm worried about cards like Spell Pierce and and Daze and Pyroblast. Teferi doesn't really solve any of the issues. That's another thing that I want to just briefly mention. I, I, I don't even know. I feel like Teferi, the new Teferi, at least brings something to Miracles that it it, it solves. Um, it does have some sort of like it solves a problem that Miracles might struggle with. I think Narset is kind of more of the same, but with a conditional... This is the way that I look at it. It's more of the same in the sense that, like, the, the impulse is kind of like AK slash predict, but then the then the passive is just like the, you know, like the... I don't even know. It's just like a an arc star, like a shuriken that you throw and just, like, completely gut someone, potentially, but you could also miss. I really like that that metaphor. Would you say Boomerang is a would be a card to add to Miracles that solves problems that it is not currently solving? I played Boomerang actually. I played it recently, and it was kind of nice. On that note, to... let's 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 jump into the next topic. Could you introduce introduce it for us, Enra? The next topic, or do we want to talk about Karn? Let's talk about Karn. Karn, the Great Creator, is a four mana planeswalker for four mana, all of it being colorless, and it has five loyalty. Activated abilities of artifacts your opponents control cannot be activated. Plus one, until your next turn, up to one target non-creature artifact becomes an artifact creature with power and toughness equal to its converted mana cost. Minus two, you may choose an artifact you control from outside the game or in exile, reveal that card, and put it into your hand. That was, that was Bryant's bedtime sexy voice. This card is incredibly fucking lame. Why is that? I've been playing more Vintage than Legacy recently just because I think it's fun. And uh, Karn is incredibly boring to play against. Like, it doesn't create interesting games. It's just four mana, minus two, go get Lattice, end the game. Can you, can you explain fun, that for our listeners? So, Micro, Mycosynth Lattice is the name of the card. It's a six mana artifact from Darksteel. And it says that all permanence and i think even all in all zones cards become colorless and artifacts so what with karn what it does is it turns your opponent's lands into artifacts and then they can't tap for mana anymore in fact uh, all of their permanents become artifacts so they just don't do anything like you can, you can pretty much the only way you can win once this lock has been established is by attacking with creatures that were already in play um, actually, random, okay, this is just kind of funny story, but Jarvis was playing with Karn, and he was in a Karn mirror, and he also happened to have Ugin, the new Ugin out, and he was able to, both players had Karn out with the Mycosynth Lattice, but the Karns were shutting each other down, so Jarvis had to wait like 30 turns before he drew his Walking Ballista, played it for one thanks to the Ugin, and then started beating down. Random, this is how you beat Karn story, but yes, I kind of I kind of feel like this is a, I mean, when, when Karn first came out, legitimately the the legacy queues at the least it was just all post 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 people going like turn to karn off a you know defense grid or not a defense grid sorry grim monolith um just abusive stuff like that and then untapping and playing lattice and the game was the match was over right i tried karn out in miracles spoiler don't for multiple reasons a you'll never cast michael's and lattice b i learned the hard way you know bryant messen sorry me uh, mentioned the the effect how Mycosynth Lattice makes everything colorless, which means that uh, you can't pitch any cards in your hand to force a will, and you uh, you can't counter any cards with Red Elemental Blast. So, uh, yeah, that was that was a tough lesson. Definitely let a Gideon resolve because I had these just colorless force wills in my hand. That felt kind of bad. 
But yeah, don't try it in miracles. Karn, I think Karn is very powerful though. It's fun, had, right? It's like a, this colorless, stompy post planeswalker that that can allow you to have a wish board essentially for a combo kill and a variety of other fun little shenanigans. So I can see why it might be fun for people to try it. Based on Bryant's example, it's clearly not fun to play against, and it's okay. At the end of the day, my point would be that I still don't think post is very competitive compared to the highest tier decks in the format. I hate to be that guy who's saying that, and I, I know we have maybe a, a hundred post players groaning at that, and they're going to smash the their their keyboards on Reddit here shortly. But I just don't think that it it does what post needed to do to become one of the best decks in the format, personally. Even though I think that it's obviously a a good competitive a competitive addition to the deck. So I had posted in uh, a storm article on Reddit, and the only uh, feedback that I got on the article was, "Your deck must suck now, because the card the Great Creator is in the format. How are you going to deal with this?" Had nothing to do with my article at all, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> So Karn is still a four mana planeswalker. And honestly, I'm not that salty about the card. I just think for vintage it's not that fun. For legacy, it's still a four mana planeswalker in a deck without better permanent artifact mana. So the effects that are ramping Karn into play aren't necessarily ramping Micah and Flatus into play. Because Grimonoth stays tapped. You could have triple soul land, but like how common is that happening? But Karn's a four mana planeswalker that gets hit by Duress or Thoughtseize. It's also bounced from the storm perspective. Uh, and a lot of storm decks are just aiming to kill you before you can cast a four mana card. Uh, so I just don't think it's that good. I think also the format online is in a weird place where, you know, post the Grand Prix, everyone's playing Stoneblade, everybody's playing Miracles, uh, combo is everywhere as well. There's one deck archetype that is just noticeably not there, and that is... Good guy Delver of Secrets, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but the Delver of Secret decks are just not there, and those are the kind of decks that typically would, you know, punish these Ancient Tomb Karn decks with their Wastelands and their Dazes and things like that. So the format was just, it's kind of like left unchecked, which means that, you know, the Stoneblade decks and the Miracles decks that are not really good at punishing mana bases outside of back to basics are not really able to stop these Karn decks from just popping off and, you know, playing these incredible cards so you'd think that that wouldn't be the case because if miracles is becoming slower by playing more three casting cost cards and these ramp decks are now playing more higher end cards and cards to ramp into them you think delver would be primed why isn't it doing well i don't know i actually don't have an answer to that question i mean i feel like well i know like bob has been frustrated with delver just in the sense that it's not well, pre, pre-War of the Sparks, so for the Grand Prix, right? It's like, he didn't even play Delver at the Grand Prix, uh, instead opting for Dark Depths. And I think his his overall position was something like, Delver's just not doing, like, that much powerful stuff. Like, it has, like, one good matchup in Sneak and Show, and everything else is, like, 50-50, and you sort of have to outplay your opponent. But it's, like, kind of a consistent deck, except for, like, you know, the fail, the, the, the fail rate is less than other decks. Like, even Miracles has a fail rate, right? Um, but the fact that it wasn't just doing anything, like, super powerful... Like, turn one Delver with no death ride, no, like, Pyromancer therapy. Like, that's pretty beatable now. So, um, yeah, I don't know. So then I, I guess maybe that's the reason why uh, people 
Bryant is typing, he's emphasizing the fact that I have said that even Miracles has a fail rate. Every deck has a fail rate. I'll I'll say it. I'll own it. Yeah. Um, but no, no, no. Miracle sucks. Miracle sucks. High five. E5. Is that what we call it? Never mind. Okay. Uh, God, I'm so lame sometimes. <laughs> but the... Uh... Edit that one out. <laughs> right. No, but I think, you know, Delver's just not doing enough powerful stuff, and that's why it's sort of fallen out of just the meta. Also, all these new cards are coming out. Delver doesn't really have any new cards, except for maybe now there's a new card that's popping up in a lot of Delver lists. It's called Dreadhorde Arcanist. I think it's a card that everybody laughed at originally, but or most people, a lot of people. I don't know, some people. I'm still laughing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but now it's people are trying it out, and and you know, I, I've I've heard a lot of good feedback about the cards. So, my issue with it is it doesn't stop the fact that True Name just wins the mirror. Like it seems like people are playing this card to play something new, but it's not actually better than, in my opinion, than Delver, Gurmag Angler, True Name Nemesis, Young Pyromancer. Like it's just another creature that you could play, but I don't think it solves any of your matchups. Like sure, it's fun to flashback a card for free or whatever, but I just think that it's not necessarily making your deck better. I think maybe it's people that never got to play the card Dark Confidant, and then they get this nice little value creature, and it it they feel sort of tickled. Tickled to get the value off of essentially a, a two mana creature attacking. I feel like, well, no, I would. I'll give it a little bit of credit where credit is due. It is a little bit more resilient. Like it's not an X one, for example. And you get like you don't like Dark Confidant has the potential like draw like lands, I guess. But at least Dreadhorde Arcanist is always going to get like pretty decent value, like a Thoughtseize or a Brainstorm or a Ponder. Those are all cards that I would be very very happy to play with. Even like Lightning Bolt in certain situations, that's kind of good too. I don't understand why this card has Trample. That doesn't really make sense to me. But I mean, I think it's I think it's it's good enough to. I want to see where it goes. You know what I mean? Like the big matchup that I'm kind of iffy about is is the blue white matchup, right? Like if Dread Horde Arcanist can make the Grixis Delver versus blue white matchup, like if it can give percentage points to Grixis Delver, then that's that's kind of good, but testing remains to be done, and honestly, I'm not going to be playing Dreadhorde Arcanist. I think what well, so I think the card was designed to play with pump spells, correct? Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So that's why they gave it the fun little trample in case you want to put Invigorated Rampage or or what have you, and and is that what the card is called, Invigorated Rampage? I don't I don't actually know the names of all the different. I believe that was from Kaladesh. Yeah, the Delve one, right? No, that's Become Immense. Oh, Become Immense, okay. Yeah, so this allows you to basically pump spell it, attack, get probably get back a pump spell because the pump spell usually is making its power bigger than it costs, and fun stuff. But, okay, so this was like a huge tirade that sub, like we were talking about Karn and now we're talking about Arcanist, but wrapping back to Karn, right? So Delver sort of fell out of the meta, meta, which is why I think Karn, you know, was sort of just going unchecked. Now I feel like I'm seeing a lot less Karn, which is kind of interesting. But I feel like this just goes back to what, you know, Wilson was saying is that the post-X, and also what Bryant was saying, right? Like, I don't feel like Karn solves the issues that these decks are facing. Like, you go to a Grand Prix, you're going to run into Delver a couple times, and I, I don't understand really how Karn would necessarily 
improve those matchups. I guess tutoring for an e-bridge could be kind of cool, but like that's something that could be preemptively. I don't know. You could beat an ensnaring bridge or two, but I guess maybe maybe looking at Karn through the the lens of post is simply not doing the card justice. For example, you know there are there are other shells I mentioned earlier. Max wrote in a three thousand word primer on Bomberman like Mono White Bomberman, and it has four copies of Karn, the the great creator, and it is a very, very good Microsynth Lattice deck because you, you get Karn, you have LED, and you just make a bunch of mana, you know, and the game's over. I feel like maybe even, like, uh, like Painter could make a comeback. Ooh. You have, yeah, I know, Wilson Wilson loves that deck, right? Or is attached to it emotionally. Would you, would you call yourself emotionally attached to the Painter deck? Not really. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> um, That's a weird comment considering it's framed on your wall. Wait, is it actually framed on his wall? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. That was a joke. Okay, my bad, Brian. Uh, I'll take the 20 by PayPal. Wilson, I got you. <laughs> but no, I think there. I think the, like, there's, there are other decks you could try it in. Don't try it in Miracles. But like, for example, the first week Karn came out, like Jack Kitchen, he made top eight. With with mono red painter featuring like three or four copies and that's kind of exciting. I think it has a future. It's obviously I, I think it's more powerful in vintage. I think that goes without saying. Just like the the mocks the mocks in format will obviously not enjoy Karn the Great Creator, but in Legacy, like I don't think it's as scary as I originally thought it was. Especially now that like maybe maybe that's just because fewer people are playing it and like the fear has now sort of like washed off and once people start playing it again, I'll start crying. But yeah, I don't know. Topic two: Modern Horizon spoilers. Enemy Horizon Canopy Lands. Insane that they were printing these. Why is that, Wilson? You wrote these comments. You talk about them. <laughs> yeah. So my you just like pull out the gun and put it to Wilson's head. Is like, what did you mean by this? Nice. <laughs> right. I like I like the pass off. I will tell the audience that my show notes are sort of spewing from gibberish in my head to a document. And when Bryant does these, it's usually a lot better organized. So I would like to apologize to my co-host for this, but Bryant has like indented bullets. Like that's how good his notes are. They they do look really nice. So what we're talking about listeners is we, in, in this new set that is coming up, we have spoiled for us a cycle of enemy colored, coming into play untapped non-basic lands that are in the format of Horizon Canopy, the future site, Selesnia, pain duel that draws a card. So this is pretty awesome. This is the kind of thing where, you know, future site was made to foreshadow some of these cards. Horizon Canopy was in the future sighted frame, so people said, oh, maybe someday they'll make a cycle of these. I think that Wizards saw that the Horizon Canopy was an insane card because it's a land that came into play untapped, making two different colors, and could later be essentially cycled uh, from play to draw, and you know, it became a legacy mainstay. There was even a Bant Horizons deck. When was that? Bryant, you're the legacy historian. Was that like 2012 or something like that? 2010, 2011. Okay. I actually faced it at Grand Prix Columbus in 2010. Oh, nice. So 
And then Horizon Canopy has always been a card in any Knight of Reliquary deck. Even Maverick today, you will see Horizon Canopies in some number. So it's an awesome card. So now we have five more Horizon Canopies, and they're enemy colored. And yes, that means two of them are blue, which is sort of crazy. We have an Izzet and a Simic Horizon Canopy, Canopy Land. So I think it's insane that they're printing these because now there's going to be six. You know, for OCD people out there, it's, uh, it's pretty awkward. We have one allied... Uh, one of these and then five enemy ones but these lands are extremely playable in legacy and the only reason why horizon canopy doesn't see more play is because it's in a color combination that is frankly one of the least competitive color combinations i mean we have maverick which is a you know a, a long time deck in legacy that does play it but it's just about the only one a deck like that that really wants to be playing those two colors as base colors in the deck so can i uh, pause you yeah, for a second wilson do you remember two weeks or two episodes ago when you were picking Maverick to top eight the Grand Prix? And now here we are and you're attacking the Slesnia Guild? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to attack it. I actually really like Maverick. Today I was brewing up a Maverick list with another, a couple actually new cards that were spoiled that we'll go over later. And I think I accidentally sent it to our chat. Oops. <laughs> but maybe we can share that at some point with our listeners. So I really like Maverick, but let's just say everybody knows that there's fewer decks that Horizon Canopy goes into than something like a blue-red Horizon Canopy land, which is insane, right? So I think these are really interesting because they're, quote, duels that, are, that have some utility and can be used in legacy decks in a variety of ways. I think people don't know the correct number. I think that you can probably have more than one in a lot of decks. You know, a couple decks that I had adhered to the show notes are something like Blue-Red Delver, which in general does not play Wastelands, but only plays two colors, and because of that you're playing tons of fetches. A lot of people are maxing out on Vox, and they play a couple basics, or maybe even three basics. That's the perfect deck to replace some of these redundant Blue-Red lands with this duel. Like, you could even maybe run up to three of, the, of this land, I think, because you're the aggressor. You care a lot more about killing your opponent than they care about killing you, and you can turn this land into gas, which could be burn or some sort of aggro creature in the late game. So I think that's, for me, that was where my mind went first to a deck that is you know, totally different than the Selesnia guild where, where I want to try this land out. Um, another one that is very obvious, I think, to a lot of people are Loam Synergies. So Horizon Canopy already was a, a fringe playable card in lands. I think people have played it uh, in and out from time to time. But now in Aggro Loam, you have a green-black dual land that has the Horizon Canopy ability. It's just a shoe-in in that deck. I think that you should definitely uh, be running multiples. The mana base is so bad in that deck that actually having the Bayou effect come into play untapped, that is going to be a very useful land in your deck. And also having that as utility, I think that's just awesome. So those are the two decks I'd want to try first. I think that these lands are so powerful that they actually open up a little bit, some new design space in some decks that, you know, maybe are a little bit more fringe. Um, could could definitely see these and really boost the power of those decks. So something I was thinking about is, for example, the Reed Duke True Name Nemesis Leovold deck. If you guys remember that. That's the kind the of deck... you won a Grand Prix with? Exactly, yeah. So that, that, this, that would be the perfect deck for this type of land because that deck wants to curve into expensive spells, but then you run out of gas because you have so many mana sources between all the, the mana dorks and then wanting to basically flood out that what do you do at, at that point? 
So if you now have this blue-green horizon canopy land, that's just beautiful for that deck. And I think that you could even run a couple um, and, and really add some of that late-game value. So those are my thoughts on these lands. So I saw something... Uh, once these were spoiled, that was a little bit different from what you're saying. And it was mostly a relief that there wasn't a red green one printed for lands. People fear lands and that, I mean, people that aren't Brent Cook fear lands is a matchup that's very tough to play. And Horizon Canopy, like you said, is never really slotted well into lands. But this new black green one, I think, is a little bit different. So in the past, I've seen Dave Long play Black Splash Lands for Abrupt Decay and a couple other cards. They could shift to that, and now miracle or miracles lands could play the black splash a lot more effectively rather than running a bayou and some other cards. It's almost free. And my second thought is Turbo Depths now, a deck that you know tends to flood out. Uh, can now play up to four of these because I've seen lists without bayou running the black green fast land, and now maybe Turbo Depths has become even more of a viable budget deck because it gives you another reason to not run duels. You can now run for the fast land for this if you wanted. I don't know the exact numbers, but you have a reason to play a budget deck, and it's extremely viable. Let me pin, let me pin a picture for you. All right, uh, <clears throat> you have fiery islet in play. That's the blue red horizon canopy land, and your opponent is attacking you with a number of scary creatures, and on their end step, you decide what could go wrong, and you cycle. You activate the cycling ability of your fiery islet, and you draw, and you look at the card, and it's a terminus, and you turn it, and you show it to your opponent. And end story. A masterpiece in one act. A masterpiece in one act. That's pretty cool, Anurag. Uh, I'll, I'll provide a, another scenario that is probably more likely for Miracles if you're thinking about adding the, this land for Miracles, and that is you play Fiery Islet, is that how you say it, <laughs> on turn one because it's the only land in your hand, but you're really excited because this is a new land, it's a new card. You're excited to try it out. You look at it, you're like, hey, this late game, this is going to really draw me some stuff, but you know, I'm playing Miracles. I don't have a million lands, but I have tons of cantrips. I'm going to keep this one lander. I'm going to ponder. Didn't find a land. Shuffled. Whatever. I'll draw a land next turn. Opponent wastelands it. Okay. That's an incredible segue to the next card that we're going to talk about. But before I do that, I just want to conclude by saying I think the, the cycle of lands is insane. We'll definitely see legacy play. Try it out because lands that have utilities that prevent flood and things like that, those are like the probably the best, most sought-after lands. So, yeah. Uh, this weekend... This Friday, I mentioned I streamed, you know, from Houston, and some pretty tragic stuff happened where I I cracked a Scalding Tarn, fetched up a Tundra, and w Wilson is just, like, red in the face right now, and I, I, I am not happy about this moment, but I will, I will, I will, I will share my, my flaws because I'm human too. I fetched a Tundra. That is a dual land. It is not a basic land, and for the, for the listeners that don't know, Wasteland can be sacrificed to destroy Tundra. Wilson, stop laughing like that. I do not appreciate this. But um, the new card, and Wilson was cackling, by the way, because earlier in the day he had mentioned this card, and he's like, it's an instant four of. But we're talking about, obviously, if you, you probably know it by now, it's Prismatic Vista. And <clears throat> this card, I share Wilson's sentiment, is sweet. I, I think Wilson is a little bit happier about this card than I am, but 
this card is basically like an omni basic fetch, right? Like you can fetch all five basics and they come into play untapped. So it's like um, you have to pay one life, but it is something like an upgraded uh, evolving wilds almost. I think you can also fetch basic wastes. Is that correct? Correct. So you can get all six basic land types. Truth. That is, that's pretty powerful. And I'm honestly really happy that this kind of effect is printed when I saw this card, basically, I was just like, there's no way this is actually, what, hello, Miracles Chat? Type, 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 type. And I think this also will become a staple in the Legacy format. But Wilson, you're the one who's most excited about this card. Talk to me. So I think as a community, our first temptation when looking at this card is to think, oh, cool, a fetch land that can get three or more different basic lands for my three or more colored deck but in reality while that is maybe a use for the card i think that this card is so good not because of that reason but because we get to run fetches five through eight of the best fetch in our heavily two color deck which is a total game changer for decks like miracles that want to operate exclusively off basic lands so Using the Miracles mana base as an example, I brewed up what I would consider to be my ideal Miracles mana base in this future world here in the next month or so without any testing. And that would be four strand, five of the, or four of this five color fetch, two tarn, five island, two plains, two tundra, one valk, and in the sideboard, one mountain. Okay, so that's 20 main deck lands with the 21st being the one mountain in the sideboard. If you start to run through the scenarios uh, about how the fetches work and everything, you're just you're never you're rarely going to be in this position that Anurag so often finds himself in. No fault of his own; he's only playing the cards that he has access to at this moment. Which is, you have a Tarn, you need White Source, you have to fetch your Tundra, and boom, your opponent always has the Wasteland, and it's terrible. So when I'm playing Miracles, my number one objective above all else is to establish my mana base, curving out in basic lands, and against any fair deck, I just I, I don't feel like I can lose in a lot of situations as long as I'm drawing reasonably and they're drawing reasonably. So I think this, this card is a total game changer for Miracles. If Narset were not printed, I would say this is the biggest printing for Miracles since the banning of Top. It's like the biggest thing to happen to Miracles since the banning of Top. I think Narset is also significant. So I'm not I'm not sure which one of these two thing, cards are going to be more significant. Probably, maybe the fetch land, just because you're going to run more and it's going so it's going to affect more of your your play lines and everything. But but man, this is uh, it's just so good for for consistency. I had a really good thought and then I forgot what it was. Was it that mountain doesn't belong in the sideboard like you fucking heathens like? No, I like the mountain in the sideboard. Oh. I like I like twenty one. Oh, that's what it was. Okay, yeah. So just just following up on that, like what I have been doing since since the card has been spoiled. Like every time I stream, I'll look at my seven card opening hand. And I'll be like, all right. So we have you know six five spells, a preordain, and a scalding tarn. And then I'll be like, all right, chat. What do you think would be better better here, Vista or scalding tarn? And so far, I have yet to see uh, an example where. Um, Vista has not been, like, just overwhelmingly better. Uh, there are a number of times where I have blindly fetched, like, a duel in a matchup where I did not expect to get wastelanded, 
and I just randomly get wastelanded. Like today in the challenge, I was playing against Blue Iron Stoneblade, three color Stoneblade, and I just got wastelanded on turn three and just lost the match. Um, that kind of thing, you know what I mean? Like, I think Prismatic Vista is definitely something I'm going to be playing. I think, I, I just I just don't see a world where like, it's not being played in, in, in at least Miracles. Do you think there's like room for this card in like other decks? Yes. Interesting. There's actually um, a new spoiler that came out, but I saw basically um, some people brewing like two color food chain, leveraging um, some of the new cards in Modern Horizons alongside Prismatic Vista. That'd be kind of cool. I mean, that's obviously like an out there brew, but I don't know. I don't know. I guess uh, decks like, like Wood Painter be a deck that could use this? I'm not really sure. Absolutely burn? not. May okay. Maybe, no, we'll burn... I don't know. Burn does get a lot of help, by the way. I, I I just like randomly thought about this, but like Burn is getting so much help in this set off these new like red lands that cycle and draw cards. It's pretty frightening. Anyways. So I think there's a hidden advantage to running something like Prismatic Vista that you might not think about. So think of when you're playing limited or draft, or I guess they're the same thing, but limited standard. Uh, if you're a poor person playing modern, you're running Evolving Wilds. You play it turn one. Your opponent has no clue what you're playing. So if you are playing Burn, you could show them an Arid Mesa, which is a giant red light. You could show them a Scalding Tarn, which could be anything. Uh, Bloodstained Mire is usually combo. But if you lead off on Prismatic Vista, you're the unknown, which means that turn two, your idol onto the Great Revel resolves uh, against combo. Um, you might be able to get to do something that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So hidden information is incredibly valuable and i think that's something that you should consider with per something that you should consider with pris prismatic vista this is there so adorable i love it i love this brian's just like stumbling over new words like it, it, oh, i was gonna say like in, in context of wilson is has a what, what is that is that a pizza cutter yes and you're just rolling it on your head it's a toy pizza cutter it's an oh it's plastic i see do you okay He's giving himself a haircut. Nice. Um, no, but do you think like the hidden information is like powerful enough to make a deck, for example, like um, like Death and Taxes play Prismatic Vista? That's a, basically a monocolored deck, right? Would something like uh, Prismatic Vista find its way into that kind of deck, for example? Absolutely not. But I I do think that it, it that specific point could affect miracles more than other decks like like burn for example because one of the biggest tells ever is the flooded strand right even if you are another deck people still often hedge that it's miracles and something like scalding tarn i'm often thinking okay miracles or or sneak and show or something that i want some sort of stack based interaction against the vista is just no one has any idea so i think for the, the first time ever i think that miracles will have this sort of sub game to play with that it hasn't really had before, which is neat. So um, also I, w I do want to answer your other question, which is will other decks play this card? I haven't really thought of anything that will just palm four, except for maybe something that just wants a generic fetch into one basic, like, like burn. But in brewing Maverick earlier today, I played one of these. I had also considered one in ant where polluted Delta is extremely powerful and it's plays a little bit different than tes 
where when I'm playing ad nauseum tendrils, I'm I'm just really hardcore on establishing my my basic land mana base uh, if I'm taking my time, and I think that this card could be like a polluted delta five or even six. So that's sort of interesting. So we'll see where it's being played. I I just think that the the probably the one competitive deck where you're palming for is, is miracles right now. So we have a couple other new spoilers we should talk about. Uh, they're both artifacts. We actually have a bunch of spoilers, but we're going to talk about two artifacts right now. Sword of the Sinew and Steel and Sword of Truth and Justice. Uh, my take on these cards is they both suck. Mm-hmm. And now let me read them to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they're both three mana equipments. And they're artifacts for those of you that don't know that equipment are artifacts. Uh, they both have the clause equip creature gets plus two plus two. Sinew and Steel gives pro black and pro red. Truth and Justice is pro-white and pro-blue. They both equip for two mana. So, Sword of Sinew and Steel, the pro-black, pro-red, says whenever a equipped creature deals damage to a... I cannot talk tonight. I apologize. It's basically when the equipped creature deals combat damage, you can, like, destroy a Planeswalker or an artifact. Correct. And then the the Azorius Sword, uh, which, like, Truth and Justice, is... When it deals damage, put a plus one plus one counter on a permanent or a creature. Probably, probably a creature. And creature. then proliferate. Correct. Actually, I, I think that would make a difference if it's not. If it's not, um, let me just like check this out real quick. It's a plus one plus one counter on a creature you control them proliferate. Okay, yeah. So it's only creatures. So that's significantly worse, Why? obviously. Um, because theoretically, walkers. You couldn't like like. Random like lands or planeswalkers, yeah. Well, you can't put a plus one plus one counter on a planeswalker. That wouldn't do anything. That would be a loyalty counter. Nah, that probably makes sense. That's probably why. Because but it's you can specific. proliferate planeswalkers, so you understand how that works, right? So like you yeah, could. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's actually true. Yeah. Hey, Anurag. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Ethical. Can you edit that to make me uh, seem less dumb? Yes, I I do this just without people asking, anyways. So, don't worry. I appreciate you. Um, I do most of the editing on, on myself, but yes, okay, yeah. So, <clears throat> I so those are what, that's what the cards do. Uh, it's like destroy artifact, planeswalker slash, put a counter on a creature and proliferate. And oh my god, I was streaming midstream. Someone's like, they just released the blue white sword, and my heart froze because. Equipment is just, like, one of the scariest things for me to have to deal with. Like, not being able to plow or, like, block with a Snapcaster or Mentor or, like, unsummon with a Jace. That's huge. And then I read it, the card, the sword, and I laughed so hard because it's just so underwhelming. Like, do you see what, like, Sword of Fire Nice does? Draws a card, deals, kills a creature, and this is just, like, put a counter on a creature? Like, what? Hello? <laughs> like... I don't know. That this just felt like kind of a, like a joke to me, and even like the 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 black red sword. Just that one seems like it's a little bit better, you know. Like true name and uh, the sword could like kill. I don't know, like a big planeswalker or shatter or something that is kind of scary. Um, I Means makes stoneforge like an out to chalice of the void, for example. Both of these swords do that actually, but. Um, so I think it's universally accepted that sort of body and mind is pretty much the current worst existing sword. But honestly, I'd run sort of body and mind before I ever ran these two. Uh, most people run sort of bottom body and mind for pro blue against opposing true name nemesis. And then it, of course, generates a 2-2 wolf. Uh, I'd rather have that effect than tr- sort of truth or justice. But 
before I ran any of those three swords, I would run Sword of War and Peace as it actually clocks miracles very quickly, you know, and provides the pro-white to stop uh, swords to plowshares or even to fairy. It's relevant that sinew and steel kills artifacts and there isn't a great tutorable equipment answer for artifacts other than Manriki Gusari to kill other equipment. So I can see that being some some amount of relevance that exists now. The Planeswalker ability is is almost irrelevant because with the sword's boost, your creature is able to attack and kill a Planeswalker. So the way I look at that most of the time is that it is sort of an aggressive ability in that you can continue to beat face while getting rid of a Planeswalker that would have been soaking up damage and slowing you down, which to me is sort of like a waste of an ability a bit. But uh, yeah, so... To me, it's like out of out of these two swords and the four abilities on the sword, I think the most interesting part of this is destroying artifact. But hey, people love proliferate. I don't know how much you guys spend on the, the forums and whatnot, but I I've been really deeply involved in some cube stuff, and uh, you know I read some of these spoiler forums, and people absolutely loved proliferate in some of these other formats that are not legacy. So I think that there will be hype with these swords. The other thing, and this is me being sort of grinchy, but Whenever these swords are spoiled, and it's okay because this is a card game and we all want to get happy about stuff. I'm not trying to take away your joy from spoilers. But everybody always sees these swords and thinks of these crazy magical Christmas land scenarios and always wants to sideboard the swords. Swords are the most talked about sideboarded cards in in Legacy since Stoneforge was printed, in my opinion. It's, it's like there's always some sword with a certain color protection and, and people want to stick it in there. And so recently I've been seeing this Azoria sword and the proliferating and some crazy magical scenarios coming out of this uh, counters and proliferating and often involving double strikers like Mirren Crusader and all sorts of things. So I do, I just want to say like from a competitive standpoint, I don't see these swords making a huge splash. It's cool. They exist particularly for a cube builder. They're sort of war and peace level for a cube which is not like a super broken card, but a cubable card. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be happy to slot them in there. Yeah, that's what I, I'm pretty sure it's just a legacy no-go. I mean, like maybe you could say it's like a deck like Steel Stompy could play the blue-white sword. You know, pro blue-white is kind of relevant and you can actually use, you can combine the effect with your like walking ballistas and steel overseers and hanger back walkers. And I don't know. Kind of just like reaching, stretching, but yeah, all in all, I feel like these swords are kind of a flop, and I'm honestly like maybe that's not not that bad, right? Like these swords should not be that broken because again, these are going into modern, and you know if they were too good, well, that would certainly be a problem. Well, the only broken sword is sort of fire and ice, and then there's some high tier swords like you know feast and famine is solid mostly because. It negates the mana disadvantage of of having to go all in on your sword and whatnot, and just a nice grindy engine. Um, you know, and there's a couple others that have some abilities. I'm a little higher on body mind for some different reasons than Bryant, but I'm probably thinking of other formats too. I like the body mind gives you literally a body to put the sword on if you get a single hit in, which is something that equipment have that are downside is that once you deal with the creature, now you just have equipment. So that's cool that it makes a creature. So, you know, we just, I think there's just one sword that's totally broken in Legacy, and I say broken, but it's just really just a tier one card, and it's not even that 
terrible that it exists, and I don't think they're going to ever make another Sword of Fire and Ice, so I wouldn't cross our fingers for any of the next three to be like that. I would expect it to be sort of more along these lines, but I think that's okay. Giver of Runes. Yeah, we just talked about the swords, so the next card is Giver of Runes, which is like uh, the what the pseudo-mother of runes that gives protection from colorless, but cannot protect itself. It's also a 1-2 instead of a 1-1. One, one. Right, that's pretty big. Um, also, like, the artwork is kind of cool. Is that like like Nahiri or like a Stoneforge Mystic crying or something like that? I don't know. Is it a Anyways. core instead of a human? Oh, you're right. It is not a human. It is a core. Okay, so that's somewhat relevant. So I think this card is significantly worse than Mother of Ruins. But that does not make it a totally unplayable card in Legacy. I think that it is mostly not going to be played, but I think the fact that Recruiter of the Guard exists and the fact that Eldrazi is a high-tier deck means that this could be playable as a one-of in the Legacy format. I don't think it's going to be some sort of we-want-to-play-eight-moms kind of thing. But the sub-game of Mother of Runes is that if you untap with it, the rest of the game against a fair, fair deck becomes very complicated for, for the fair opponent, right? Because your Mother of Runes is just sitting there, then you have to basically get two removal spells to even get Mother of Runes off the board. This card just doesn't do that because there's no urgency. You can just deal with it as soon as you get the removal to deal with it on turn three or four, and then you're not really set back at all. So that's my thought on it. Do you guys have any other opinions? Yeah, I mean, if I take that and I take it a little bit further, I feel like you could even look at it like the other way around, right? Like, because it still has to, it still absorbs a card, and that's a card that you cannot put towards, um, like, answering another creature, right? Like, I mean, maybe it's just like, like, for one mana, it's like a relevant, like, you have to answer me kind of card, and that's not like that bad of a price to pay for, you know, for that that kind of effect. I mean, it's not. It's definitely not as good as Mother of Friends. I'll, I'll give you that much for sure. I think that's the trap, though. That's that, like what you're saying. You are that if you swords a mom, you're fine with that, right? Because they haven't really won anything there. They win with the mom if they untap with it, and you can't swords it because that's the point at which you are in this really tight spot later in the game, requiring multiple removal spells that their one drop has just totally negated your removal game plan. So just the fact that you have to trade a removal spell for a creature doesn't make the creature in good in, in any way because you, the timing is, is on you now, you know? So, yeah, I get what you're saying. It's not like, it's not like you're literally playing a vanilla 1-2 that you can ignore for, for one mana. Like, you have to kill it eventually. But How do you but, feel about this as like maybe like the fifth Mother of Runes type of effect? Well, I, that's what, sort of what I was saying is like maybe it could be, but only if you want that colorless effect from it. And it's not good enough just to be the fifth mother of runes. So here's the other part of this theory is I don't even think people really are wanting five mother runes. I think a lot of deck lists from as particularly skilled Death of Texas players we've seen go down to three mother of runes. Swamping out on mother of runes can be bad. You know, as we know, Terminus is a highly played card in Legacy. And so, yeah, I don't think a fifth really bad Mother of Runes is is really what I'm wanting to be doing unless I want the utility of the colorless protection. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I don't particularly play with creatures. I just thought this, look at this card, and I was just like, oh, this 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 could be, you know, cool. Yeah, but you and... kill them. I mean, think think about your game plan against, against actual Mother of Runes, right? Like, this is totally different in how you care about it when you see it. Yeah, that's true. 
my swords to plowshares there's the, the urgency is something like i will plow a mother of runes on turn one i would not plow this on turn one um so yeah okay force of negation yeah this card i'm rubbing my hands together here's a little bit of you talk about it first i think you're higher on it but and uh, i think brian also is really excited but well let's talk about it so modern now has a pseudo force of will but this is not about modern. Hold up, where's where the card? I want to. Okay, so the way this card works is that if it's not your turn, you can alt cost it basically. So, um, you know, my opponent plays a planeswalker. I can play Force of Negation, pitch a card, and then it's basically a zero mana negate for for you know when it when a it's blue not your turn. card. Yeah. Oh, it has to be a blue card. Yeah. Okay. So it's like Force of Will. Yeah. Um, I looked at this card at first, and I wasn't sure. I felt like this card was not really good enough. I mean, like, for, for Modern, I'm not even sure. I don't know nothing about Modern. But for Legacy, I'm just looking at this, and I'm just like, when would I ever want this kind of ability? And then I thought, like, you know, rewind back to the context of Miracles, and I'm just like, wait a minute. All the cards that people typically play against me are just, like, Planeswalkers, Enchantments, Artifacts. Those are the ones that are super, super, super scary. And I can also just, like, fight on my opponent's turn with the card like uh, Source of Plowshares or Brainstorming Determinus or things like that. It's definitely... Um, I feel like this card is very good in the context of Miracles as as Force of Will number five when other options like Spell Pierce or Main Deck Flusterstorm are just not something that I'm looking for. Um, random aside, is that when you do counter the non-creature spell, it does get exiled. So we talked about this earlier before the cast, but something like Past in Flames would get exiled by Force of Negation. I think that's kind of cool. Um, and I also did some math with uh, Ved when we were talking about this card and adding one copy of this card into your, you know, into your list means that you have um, on seven, like a, or like if you're mulliganing specifically for like a Force of Will effect, you're like 70% likely to hit it between the seven card hand and the mold of six if you have one copy of force navigation and if you have two copies of force navigation you're up to like 75 percent. so that's that's pretty good um i mean albeit in those sort of matchups force of negation has to be really really good for you to do that kind of thing but yeah i don't know i think uh, i think this card is going to be at least a one of in in, in the miracle 75 so i have a couple of thoughts uh, like you said, exiling past in flames. I'm a part of the ant group, as I mentioned previously tonight, and I don't understand it. People are laughing at this card, saying how awful it is. I don't know if they're just blind or if they don't know how to read. Like exiling past in flames is such a huge advantage of force of negation over pa- uh, over force of will, and I don't th- think it's anything to joke about. I think if force of negation ends up sticking around, the storm decks are going to have to adapt. They'll have to consider main deck hope of gear per Xanad swarm, or at least more of a heavy emphasis in the sideboards. I think main deck might be a little bit steep, but if it ends up being a four of, which I don't think it will, but if that does happen, decks need to reconfigure based on course, uh, force of negation. Uh, the other thing is Delver style strategies. Force of negation is literally perfect for them. Tapping out turn one for a Delver secrets. They now have 12 free counters to protect their Delver secrets between days, force of will and force of negation. Uh, that's if they end up playing four, which isn't likely, but it does fit well over flex spots like spell snare or stifles or things like that. Yeah, actually, that's something that's really interesting. Like proactive 
non-creature threats against Delver suddenly become a lot worse. Like, I'm thinking, like, cards like Counterbalance or even, like, Jace or something like that. Like, Force of Negation, pretty good in those matchups, even, like, stopping a Terminus. I'm obviously, like, very skewed to the perspective of Miracles, but, like, I think it has utility. Is it a four of? Absolutely not. There's no way it's that good. But I think it's worth testing out, trying out. It has potential, for sure. I'm also really disappointed that all of the force of blanks other than the blue one are absolute trash god i was uh, look so looking forward to the white one i was like maybe it's just like a zero mana plow or or like some like maybe like if we get lucky it's a judgment no it was a freaking anthem like what uh. there was a fake plow spoiled i don't know if you happen to see it but it was a two mana swords where you could pitch for its alternate cost but it ended up being fake that's unfortunate that would have been so cool though I don't. Wilson was going to say something. Yeah, I think. So first of all, I don't even know how good the pitching swords would be, but that's okay. Uh, so I was going to talk about this this card. I think that it's playable. I, I think we. It sounds like we actually all maybe agree. I thought maybe Anurag, you were going to hype it a little bit more than you did. So I think it's a playable card. It's good in some of the scenarios you described. If you want to maximize your percentages of countering a chalice on turn one or what have you, that definitely helps out with that. I think what's going to be very awkward about this is that it forces you into being even more reactive on your opponent's turn with how your lines play out in matchups where that may or may not be what you want to be doing. So matchups where, like you said, there's some sorcery speed things that you want to do, similar matchups where they're also playing a controlling game, doing things on your turn. It 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 requires you to, to play this game plan on their turn, and you can't always dictate that that's what's going to happen. So what I like about Miracles is sometimes you need to turn the corner on your turn with a Planeswalker. Sometimes you are able to hold things up. And So what I'm thinking about with deck building is I think that if you are going to leverage this card, you absolutely want the AK package. Number one, because the card advantage offsets the card disadvantage of additional Force of Wills. And number two, because you are playing this card advantage game on their turn, I think you just add those two things together and it's almost like a slam dunk. Like AK should go in the ideal deck for this card. The other thing that I want to say about this card is the cancel mana cost is great. It costs three mana to hard cast. That is a big deal over Force of Will. And I think that uh, it's actually something that's going to be really relevant to this card if people run one copy in their Miracles deck. That's a really good point. The uh, I I got so tunneled into the zero mana cost that I forgot like three mana negate is probably better than a five mana negate. Like in uh, I mean like if you think about it, like if you start playing like multiple copies, eventually you will be oversaturated on these forcible effects. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to pitch one force to another. Um, also, you can you know just have like one force in your hand and then you hard cast the force of negation. So number of different. I think I definitely think like this is going to be better than like. I personally like it more than like spell pierce, and I think uh, I don't know stopping planeswalkers in like the the blue matchups, stopping combo uh, critical combo pieces in those matchups. I think it's gonna like the, the the primary thing about this that appeals to me is the the mana cost. Right in general, legacy is a format all about abusing and maximizing on mana. This is a card that is actually just like free when it comes in to terms of mana so for that reason i think um it's it's like a shoe in that it'll it'll uh see some play how do you compare to dovin's veto i think dovin's veto i thought dovin's veto was unplayable but i think there are matchups where dovin's veto is good 
I definitely think this has more applicability than Dovin's veto. Um, I will not, I, I tried Dovin's veto. I will not be trying it again. I think it's just like exactly, eh. Like, I mean, even that feels like an overstatement, but uh, I feel like this is just way better. Like, way, 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 way better. Okay, cool. Um, so, yeah. So we do have a couple more cards that we want to talk about. Let's see. The first one is Plague Engineer. And I, I, you kind of see like a recurring pattern here, right? Where they're literally just taking like legacy cards and they're sort of just like nerfing them. Like we've gone through Mother of Runes. We've gone through Force of Will. Well, here's Engineered Plague, which is um, Engineered Plague, but on a 2-2 Death Touch body for also two in a black. And my show notes says that Wilson likes this creature. Yeah, so I want to correct you in your assessment that it is a nerfed legacy card because this is actually an engineered plague for your opponent only. And I think that that is a relevant ability uh, in decks where you may have true name nemesis and your opponent may also have true name nemesis and, and you maybe want some sort of flexible sideboard option that kills humans empty the Warren's tokens, and true names, but you yourself have some of these cards in your deck. Engineered Plague was always awkward in those scenarios. So I'm, I'm speaking from experience with Grixis Control. I liked Engineered Plague as a sideward option. It sort of made me consider not playing true name in my main deck when I wanted it to be one of these flexible answers for other true names. So it's interesting. Uh, I wrote in the notes, bring back survival, because this is obviously a, a fun survival package card. Uh, so one thing about Plague Engineer is, on top of being a throwback to Engineer Plague, it's also, I'd, in my opinion, it's morphed with Plague Spitter, which is a card you might uh, recognize from my favorite set, Invasion. Uh, they're both 2-2, two -two, same mana cost, and they Plague Spitter deals one to each creature and each player at the beginning of every upkeep, so it's kind of similar to the Engineer Plague effect. Uh, if you, I, mean, I just feel like they have something to do with one another, so it's not completely unrelated. Maybe I'm just crazy. Anyway, so uh, we have a card coming up that Wilson is thrilled about. It's called Hex Drinker. Wilson, tell us about it. So this is a 2-1 for a green mana. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty good, right? I mean, we have Jungle Lion exists, which is a 2-1 for a green mana that can't block. That's a, a playable aggro card in some formats that many people around the world play called Cube. But wait, it gets even better. So this is a 2-1 creature for one green mana with level up for one generic. Level 3, the creature becomes a 4-4 with protection from instance. And at level 8, it becomes a 6-6 with protection from everything. So we have a 2-1 creature for one mana that can level up into a progenitus. I, I absolutely love this because it's just an insanely pushed aggressive creature. When I look at quote, pushed creatures like this. I'm not looking for the ideal scenario. I'm not saying like, oh, how often can I make this thing a progenitus? The floor is, is something that's fairly aggro and it has this wonderful figure of destiny mode. And that's what I think I'm most excited about with this card <coughs> is that you can get to this sort of difficult to deal with figure of destiny creature fairly quickly, which, which makes your opponent have to sort of navigate the game in a certain way where they can't tap out in a scenario where you can then respond by going into this protection mode 
with your very cheap aggro creature. So how is this relevant for Legacy? I think this could be playable in a one-of for Elves, because Elves have a bunch of unimpressive creatures by themselves, and for Green Sun Zeniths. You see Elves sometimes get a scavenging use in situations where they just need to ride one big thing, but this is a lot easier to get. It's a one-mana creature. They have tons of mana lying around, I think it could be interesting in Elves. And the other one is is Maverick. So I, I brewed a Maverick deck with this in it. I think it might be more impressive in Elves than, than Maverick, but I still like it in a, sort of a toolboxy card. And, you know, to be honest, I'll say this for a third time, but it's it's an insane cube card, and it's going straight into my cube. Yeah, I th one thing that I do like about this card is that it is something of like a, what is it, Mana Sync is what I'm trying to think, trying to, trying to use. So like in, in sort of situations where you know, the game has come to a lull, you actually actively can be doing things every turn. Uh, level up is only like as a sorcery, right? That is correct. Okay, yeah, well still, so that means that if you don't actually have, you know, just nonstop action going on every turn, like you take one turn to make this this, this just absurd creature and then like, you know, proceed, win, win the game maybe? I don't know. Um, interesting is that the, the three level 3 to 7 is protection from instance. That's the different from like Hexproof, so that's kind of cool. Um, which kind of like adds a little bit of like flavor for you know cube and like modern i don't know if i'm going to necessarily see a lot of this card in like legacy i think the bar is pretty high but i do think that uh it, it is another card that could be tried out um for certain in in some of the decks you mentioned like honorog i think that this is a card without a home so wilson has been playing legacy as long as i have and he might remember the old 10 land stompy decks this would have been a perfect card for that era but nowadays, I don't think there's really an aggressive green deck that isn't Infect that is playable. And even Infect is kind of questionable. So I don't think that, personally, I don't think this is going to see play in Elves. Uh, Maverick, to me, is a little too controlling to be playing a card like Hex Drinker. But I think it's super sweet. I just don't think it necessarily has a place to be played. Gentlemen's bet is going into Elves. I accept. Snap accept. All right. Hundo. Hundo. Okay, Mox Tantalite. This card sucks. Uh, so <laughs> people are really, really excited about this and Lotus Bloom being together. They both, they're both they both suspend three. One of my questions is, if you're willing to wait until turn four to play a combo card, it should kill your opponent by the time it resolves, right? It just shouldn't be another Mox Opal effect. So what I'm hearing is, well, after you resolve Bolus' Citadel, you now have eight Lotus Blooms that you can cast off your Citadel. The issue is you don't want cards that are good post-Citadel. When you resolve Citadel, you should be winning the game. You have Dark Rituals. You have Cabal Rituals. You have Chromoxes. You have Mox Opals. I mean, you buy inside Diamonds. There's so many fast mana cards that you can play that you don't need more. You need cards to ramp into your Citadel. I just don't see why people are excited about this card personally. So can I draw up a scenario with this card? So let's say you're playing four of these and four... Lotus Blooms, right? That's what it's called. And uh, you're playing this weird storm deck with the Citadel. You have you have a Mox in your hand, right? You have some some cantrips and everything. You have land Mox. You suspend the Mox on turn one. You're like, okay, this is going to be cool. In three turns, I'm going to get this. Your opponent goes, you untap, upkeep, draw. You draw a Lotus Bloom for the turn. I think that just sounds like the absolute worst possible thing. And you're playing eight of these cards... So you're going to have these weird, clunky, mid-game draws where you're waiting for your combo turn and you're drawing these irrelevant things 
before between the time that you go off and the time that you build up for it. And it's just, I think, incredibly awkward and slow. As foretold, that's like the most creative I can get with this card. I just don't, I don't, I, I'm particularly not very whelmed by this card. Like, I don't know. I could see the hype. Like, maybe it's like the honeymoon phase where you see a card and you're like, oh, zero mana mocks. Nice, vintage, nice. And then, you know, you just get grounded by the fact that it's legacy. And legacy is pretty cutthroat when it comes to cards like. I'm not even sure if the new Planeswalkers that we got, like, that everyone is super, super enthused about are, you know, that, like, as good as I originally thought they were. So, I don't know. I feel like um, the sky will come crashing down and reality will be restored to what it once was. So, yeah. So, I think for the Planeswalkers, honeymoon phase is more appropriate. For Mox Tannelly, I feel like it's more like beer goggles and that this card (laughs) is just trash. (laughs) Nice. Yes, but 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 speaking of planeswalkers, I, I do want to talk about um, one other planeswalker that was spoiled, and this one honestly is just like terrifying to me. So, the name of the card: Red and Six. The tick up gets a land back from your graveyard. The tick down deals one. Sorry, it's plus one to get a land back, minus one to deal one damage, and then the emblem is kind of irrelevant. Just like instants and sorceries have have retrace. The, ki- the 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 thing about this card that just shocks me is that it is a two mana planeswalker for a red and a green with three loyalty. That is actually just insane. This is a two mana planeswalker that does not look like utter garbage trash. Sorry, Tybalt. Like, the fact that you can just go, like, Mox Diamond into Dual Land, play this, get your land back on turn one, I'm I, I'm not crazy in thinking that's just, like, really, really, really good, right? You are you are crazy, because I think that it is good. I think it's okay. I don't think it's really, 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 really good. Okay, I'm with Wilson on this one. Ground me on the okay, that's what That's what I want to see, because I feel like Planeswalkers are pretty powerful. This, like, kills, like, a bunch of things, like, what, Thalia, Mom, Baleful Strix... Uh, even like Delver Pyromancer at some sorts of situations. It's, in my eyes, I feel like the decks that can sustain this card will definitely be seeing a couple copies of this. I'm excited that I'm also like a little bit wary. I don't know. But I'm, I'm glad to know that you guys are sort of just like telling me that it's not as good as I think it is because I, I might I might be a little bit too jaded by this. I don't know. The, the fact that you can play it on turn one, even on turn two, whatever, that's still like very spooky to me. People have been posting Rug Delver lists with this. I probably don't think it belongs on Rug Delver, but like uh, like, like Aggro Loam and maybe Lands, for example, seem like decent homes for this deck. So one thing that I think you should consider is you're looking at this from the lens of someone who likes to play control decks. And traditionally, these Loam decks tend to have pretty good mid-range matchups. And this is another card to increase your mid-range matchups. But it doesn't actually help you beat any matchups that are actually difficult to begin with. So you're getting another tool that's like sort of medium that will help you against these other mid-range decks. But it's not over-the-top good. So it's competing with slots like Sylvan Library. And what are you more afraid of, Renin 6 or Sylvan Library? Mm, that's a good point. Maybe like as a replacement for like the the Crucible out of the board that some of the decks play, like, you know, maybe it's comparable there. But perhaps it's not actually like the... It, well, it's definitely not the next era of like, you know, the other Loam-esque decks. Well, just compare it straight up to Life in the Loam, right? Like that's that's the best comparison so far. And I would say that it does not accomplish what Life from the Loam accomplishes in that Life from the Loam combos with cards like Exploration 
and dredges more lands into your graveyard. So aggro lo loam as a deck only generally plays two life from the loams. I think that this could probably be better in aggro loam given the pinging ability, maybe, if you can cast it. But I think it's just a fine card. Yeah. I, maybe I just like overvalue the the minus one effect on a. It's just like introducing a new option to decks that maybe did not have this kind of option before. I think that you value the fact that it's a planeswalker very highly, and I think that's very important. I'm not trying to pick on you at all. I think there's a reason why planeswalkers are good in the game, and that is that they essentially cheat on mana. You get something into play that gets powerful effects each turn by using a resource that is not your mana, which makes planeswalkers in general very good. But sometimes that makes us as players react a certain way to seeing, oh, two-mana Planeswalker that does good things. But sometimes those things, when we have comps for them, you know, I think, I think Sylvan Library is a great one that gets a repeatable effect that you're not putting mana into. Or Life from the Loam, which you do have to put mana into, but you are getting a similar effect, but it's more powerful. Um, I think that that's relevant. So you did mention these things that you can ping, which make this card solid to have on board. And it's worth considering, but I do think it's worth considering why planeswalkers are good when we do like the sort of two mana planeswalker hype. And I think they did a good job of designing the card because it's good but not broken. Yep. Cool. So we have two more cards left, the last two cards, and I mean these are pretty pretty straightforward. So um, the first is Ice Fang Coatl, which is basically like the Snow Baleful Strix. And honestly, I'm not a huge fan of this card. I mean, it's but Food Chain. So yeah, so here, so basically, the, the reason I don't like the card is because it requires too many resources for it to have death touch, and without death touch, it's just a one-one, like it's a coiling oracle, and that's not really good enough. Um, but it is true that there are maybe, maybe so like this. I referenced this earlier, but there could be like a brew with like food chain. I think I saw it on the source somewhere where you're playing a bunch of snowlands. You're just blue and green. You play prismatic vista. And you're just fetching your snowlands with these vistas and misty rainforests, and then you know you can actually leverage the one-one body for something greater than just the 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 death touch aspect. It does have flash though, which is kind of cool. So if it actually was like you know, I guess I, I I don't know if you could actually consistently get the three snowlands into play, the flash may be like I don't know. It, somebody try it out and let me know. I guess that that's probably my take on it, but I I probably wouldn't wish. Wait, you know, spend too much time um, trying. This it will slide perfectly right into Nick Fed. <laughs> it's the fourth best cement card in my 720 snow cube. That's adorable. All right, and then the new rule: Wilson is not allowed to talk about cube anymore. Ooh, I kind of like, I like his cube. I haven't never played his cube. Last card: Nature's Chant, and this one just disappoints me so much. You want to know? I, why? I knew you would hate this. I knew it. I just don't see the purpose of this card. It no, is a you're strict, OCD. You are. It is a be strictly so better disenchant, and that just makes me so upset. Like, why, 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 why? I, wait, is disenchant modern legal? Yes. You didn't say that confidently enough. Yes. There we go. Okay, cool. I believe it's an eighth. Okay. So yeah, I mean. Very clearly, this is a strictly better disenchant, but it's also exactly like a disenchanter for the green decks. You're also probably a white deck, so you're probably playing disenchant if that's like the thing that you want to be doing anyways. I know for like miracles, I will be playing one of these to split with my other disenchant, which is just kind of obnoxious, but I mean, it is objectively correct to do so, I guess. Um, unless for, for some reason, is there, I guess it gets countered by flash freeze. So to the person who flash freezes my, my, my nature's chant, 
congratulations, you win. But yeah, I've been playing around surgical with this. I I just I have I have no nothing positive to say about this except that now I guess I I mean it's a new card. Cool. Now whenever you use some of these uh deck builder tools online that have like a little color pie chart, it gets to show that you have a green color identity in your deck. Oh my god, are you serious? Is that gonna happen when I load this into cardboard live? I might just not play it for that exact reason. No, Cardboard Life has an override for that. I'm just talking about some of these other tools that don't consider these type of corner cases that will uh, automatically assign the green color identity to you. <clears throat> Sick brag. I'm just kidding. Cardboard Life is awesome. Yeah, so... Correction. Uh, Disenchant was not an eighth. It is time in shift, Time Spiral. Time shifted, yeah. Okay. That's what makes it modern legal. It, it, yeah, it is 1 a.m. now, guys, so we will be wrapping up the cast... Thank you so much for joining us, listening to us. Oh my, we're almost at two hours, so that's that's pretty cool. I, I I did have a lot of fun looking at spoilers and talking about these cards. I hope you had as much fun listening. Please, please, please give us all your feedback in the comments and wherever money. you are seeing this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, shameless plug: www.theeternalglorypodcast.com. Check our website out as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Bryant Wilson. Have a good night. I'll see you guys in two weeks. Sweet dreams. Goodbye.